Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father covers paragraphs 1691 to 1750, Intro to Morality. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, Today we begin part three of the Catechism. Um, So just as sort of a a brief review, a very brief review, um, part one was, um, generally we could say it was on the creed. Uh, Part two was on the sacraments. Part three, which is entitled Life in Christ, is on um, the Ten Commandments. It's on morality. Um, It begins with paragraph 1691, and it's it's very interesting how at the beginning of this um, this section, which is you know this part which is entitled "Life in Christ," how important Christ is to living the moral life, Um, and I think that that is maybe the first important lesson that we take from from this part, and I think it's something we want to keep our eyes on as we go through. Um, these paragraphs and through the Ten Commandments over the next couple weeks is um, the centrality of Christ and the moral life. That it's not just about the commandments or about living a moral life or virtues or acts, but really that Christ is the center. It's living this life in Christ. So we're reminded at the very beginning, remember who is your head and of whose body you are a member. And this kind of frames then the moral life is we're really living the life of Christ as his body. Paragraph 1692 then situates this part three in the larger catechism. So we're, we're reminded that the symbol of the faith, the creed, confesses the greatness of God's gift to man in his work of creation, and even more in redemption and sanctification. So the creed first tells us what Christ has done for us. And then the faith confesses, what the faith confesses, the sacraments communicate. So the last part that we covered on the sacraments is about how we're incorporated into what Christ has done for us. So the, f- the first part is about what Christ has done for us. The second part is about how we're incorporated into what Christ has done. If you remember, we emphasized that theme of the mysteries, um, that the very life of Christ is somehow made present, mysteriously made present in the sacraments. Then we're told... Um, the this the life of Christ is made capable or we are made capable of doing so of living this life of Christ by the grace of Christ and the gift of his spirit 
which they receive through the sacrament and through prayer. So this section is about living this life of Christ, and it's only possible by what the sacraments have done for us. So the I think the error that this part is um, trying to guide us out of is what we might call Pelagianism, so the idea that we're somehow going to do these works on our own. Paragraph 1693, Christ Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father. And so in this life that we're living together, we're doing it um, in Christ as sort of a pleasing life to the Father. 1694, we're incorporated into Christ by baptism. Um, And then finally, in 1695, it's the Holy Spirit who really guides us. So the moral life is also connected to the Trinity, which we professed in the creed. So we're living this life in communion, pleasing the Father according to the Father's will. We're living it in Christ, in the Son, who by our baptism enables us to live this life. And then we're living it by the Holy Spirit who, who lives through us. Another point um, in 1696 is this this idea of the two ways that there's a way of life, the way of light versus the way of death or the way of darkness. This is it's an important um, point. We see it throughout the Old Testament that there are two ways, you know, choose to live by the law or choose to not live by the law. And in the early catechesis of the church, um, even in the first century, this is presented as, you know, the Christian life is presented as a choice between living one of two ways. We see that in that parable, the narrow way and the broad way as well. The catechism then goes on, 1697, to talk about a little bit more about this catechesis of morality, and it's going to hit the themes. So first of all, and these are the th- what we want to do to kind of balance our understanding of morality. The first is that it should be about the Holy Spirit who inspires us and strengthens us and enables us to live this life. It should be about grace, this grace which saves us and which um, enables us to work, to merit, to, to grow in grace. The Beatitudes, um, this is an important thing, which is it's taken on more emphasis in catechesis in the last 50 years is the importance of the Beatitudes in morality. So we, we want to keep in mind that the, the Beatitudes are a summation of Christian morality. It's also, I will say that that's a concept that has been abused in some ways, too. So we will want to kind of work on that while we go through this part of the catechism. It entails this um, idea of morality, this, um, the morality that's presented is, um, it really incorporates an understanding of sin and forgiveness. And as Pope Francis would say, also of mercy. This catechesis also has to entail an understanding of human virtues and Christian virtues. 
and then also of the twofold commandment of love, of Father, of God, and of, of our brothers and sisters. And that's really going to be seen in the last section, large section of this part, which goes through all the Ten Commandments. And then finally, um, we should also see um, ourselves as part of the larger church when we, when we think of morality. But of course, at the, at the heart of, of living the moral life, of this moral catechesis, is Christ himself. That then moves, moves us into section one of, the, um, of part three, section one, part three. So there's really three, three sections of this initial part. I should say three chapters of this initial section. The first one deals with this idea of um, the vocation of the human person and our dignity. The second one deals more with, um, we might say, kind of communal principles, so principles of solidarity. And then the last part, it's really, I mean, when when we think about that this last chapter this third chapter it's not usually understood in morality but that is the place of grace and justification and meriting um so a lot of people would throw that in maybe to the section on the creed um or even into the section on the sacraments but the catechism really kind of focuses it on the moral life because those issues, grace, justification, meriting, all that kind of stuff, um, it enables us to live the moral life. So we don't want to explain morality apart from that. Um, so then we begin with chapter one. It's entitled The Dignity of the Human Person. This theme of dignity um, is really a, um, we might say, it's it's a way that you could use it especially if you're teaching or if you're a catechist to connect all of the commandments and all of the moral life so this sort of upholding of the concept of dignity so we're reminded that the human person has this dignity and it's rooted in eight things so when we talk about why is it that the human person has this sort of great dignity um, what is, you know, what, how do we describe the dignity of the human person? Well, we can do it in eight points. First of all, that the human person is created in the image and likeness of God. Second, that the human person is called to divine beatitude, to, to really share in the eternal joy of the Trinity. Three, that the human person um, is free um, and in a sense, can direct himself to that end by the exercise of his freedom. Fourth, um, that human beings can make deliberate acts. Fifth, that the human um, person um, can conform to the goodness of God, so God's plan for us. And 
part of that is that we are uniquely equipped with a conscience to know what that good is. Um, number six is that we can also grow interiorly. So not just in a sense of, of by our choices we're kind of building towards our eternal destiny to God, but also we kind of build ourselves by our choices. We make ourselves. We are capable of grace and strengthened and enabled by divine grace. We are able to avoid sin. That would be the, um, the seventh, if you're counting them all. And then the eighth is where we also experience the mercy of the Father, which in itself is, you know, if we think of the prodigal son, even though maybe the prodigal son, from a certain perspective, forfeited his dignity, he nonetheless had dignity because he still remained as the son of the Father. and was able to receive the Father's mercy. So what what we're going to do, um, and what the Catechism is going to do, is really to kind of explore all of those different um, facets of human dignity um, over the next, you know, 30 or 40 paragraphs. So first it begins um, with the image of God, that this is, um, that the human person has be, been created in the image of God. Um, this begins with Christ, who is, you know, the, the um, unbegotten Son of the Father, um, or the only begotten Son of the Father, excuse me, um, that really our share in the image and likeness of God comes from the Son. The divine image, we're told in 1702, is present in every man, every person. It shines forth in the communion of persons. So it's not just the individual who has this image, you know, that, that we see this image in, the, in every individual person, but also in the communion of persons, which, of course, you know, we believe in this com, um, communal God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, we see this image in our spiritual and immortal soul. We see it in the two faculties, the two um, kind of abilities or powers that are most distinctive of the human person. 1704 tells us by our reason, our ability to know the truth, and by our free will, our capability of directing ourselves toward the true good by our choices. Now we've hit this, if you recall, when we covered the um, creed, when we talked about the human person, we talked about how the human person shares in the image of God by their reason and by their freedom. So it really, I mean, we, you know, the catechism repeats itself. It echoes itself over and over again. By this reason, we're able to recognize the voice of God. And so therefore, part of being in the image and likeness of God is what we call this conscience. And the catechism is going to explain the conscience more later. We may get to it um, today. Um, and then 
um, we might uh, might also say even though by the fall we have um, we usually say we've lost our share in the likeness of God, but we retain our image um, in Jesus Christ and in um, our justification and sanctification through the sacraments and the gift of faith. We are restored fully to this great this great dignity of being in the image of 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 God, and that's in seventeen paragraph seventeen o nine. Then we, uh, the catechism then switches to the Beatitudes. Um, the Beatitudes, we're told, fulfill the promises by ordering them, the promises of Christ, by ordering them no longer merely to the possession of a territory, but to the kingdom of heaven. So if you recall, in Abra- Abraham was promised all these children and that he would have this land, the promised land. Well, Beatitudes are kind of an eternal, infinite fulfillment of that, um, a share in eternal life rather than just a geographic area. So the the Beatitudes, and there are these um, eight Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, blessed are you when men revile and persecute you, and we see this in it's Matthew chapter five three through twelve. so these these well-known beatitudes, you know, we they're read at funerals, they're read at weddings, you know, they m- repeatedly make it through the um, lectionary cycle. So you know, we hear them, and and I, I think to the point where maybe their importance is lost because we hear them so often. So the catechism, and that's one of the emphases of the catechism, is you know we really don't want to underestimate how important the beatitudes are. But what I think what where the problem is is that the Beatitudes are so multidimensional that if we just try to think that, well, this is what the Beatitudes mean, then we really lose the power of the Beatitudes. And so at paragraph 1717, I think, is very important because it, it points out... Um, the different ways that we should look at the Beatitudes, or really the different truths that the Beatitudes contain. So first of all, the Beatitudes are describing Jesus Christ. It's interesting, um, Pope Benedict in his Jesus of Nazareth series, I don't know if you've, it's like the three-volume book that um, that he did towards the end of his papacy, in the section where he covers the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he says that the Beatitudes primarily describe Christ himself. Um, we think that we somehow have to emulate these things or that they, you know, they need to describe us, but they first and foremost describe Christ. And that's the key to the moral life is what I have to live is Christ's life. I don't have to come up with a perfect life on my own. All I have to do is live his life. And what's even better is um, 
he lives it for me. This is part. This is part of the truth. Like, and I think this is. This, and that's why I think this section on the uh, morality is so important because I think for all of us trying to live the Christian life and to live it sincerely, the most difficult part is the moral life. You know, the, living the commandments. Um, but it's. I think it's because this Pelagian mindset is so ingrained in us because we think we see our failures and then we think I've, I've got to overcome these failures. Um, but there's a new way of living that Christ gives us. Um, and so the catechism is going to, I think help us in this re- reading through this part really helps us to understand. Most people just read the 10 commandment parts of of this of this part of the catechism but really the first part it should kind of instruct us what those 10 commandments mean for us you know so that's the first thing that the beatitudes tell us is that really they're describing how Christ Christ's life his life how he lived the second they express the vocation of the faithful associated with the glory of his passion and resurrection. So only after they first described Christ did they describe how we are called to kind of associate with Christ's life in both the cross but then also in the resurrection. Third, they... Um, shed light on the actions and attitudes characteristic of the Christian life. So, you know, we're told, you know, we're reminded that this life is primarily sharing in the cross and in the resurrection. But also those those uh, beatitudes kind of shape our our approach, our attitude. The beatitudes as attitude um, to life, if you want to swipe that um, then they are paradoxical promises that sustain our hope so they're also a promise they also proclaim blessings and rewards that have already secured that's the other thing is the reason why they're they fill us with hope is that these things have already been won why because they describe Christ's life already He's already achieved these things for us. Then finally, these um, these blessings, the Beatitudes, they've already begun to be lived, especially in the Blessed Virgin Mary. So we could begin to read um, the Beatitudes just from the perspective of Our Lady and begin to see them, at how she has, um, how they've been fulfilled. But see, I think that's the danger is because the Beatitudes aren't commandments in, in the strict sense of do this or don't do this, but more in the sense of attitudes. This is where the danger, you know, can, you know, where we can kind of distort it. But we really do need to see that full vision of what the Beatitudes are. Um, and the Beatitudes point out another fundamental truth, and that is that the human person has a natural desire for happiness. 
we talked about in the very beginning of the catechism how the human person seeks God, that there is this sort of natural inclination towards the divine. There's also this natural inclination to happiness. We're oriented towards the good. Now we may, as the catechism is going to teach us, we may have a distorted ver- view of what the good is. Or, um, uh, you know, we might have a disproportionate view that one good is higher than it actually is. Um, the Beatitudes then reveal that the goal of human existence, the ultimate end of human acts, is God. God is our final cause. God calls us to his own beatitude, which is, as you know, as the catechism has already reminded us, is part of our dignity as human beings, is that we've got this, e- this destiny towards eternity. We talk about Christian beatitude, the catechism does. Um, we might say that it's this um, coming of the kingdom of God, this happiness that's prepared for us, or the, sh- uh, the vision of God. We call that the beatific vision. If you remember towards the end of the catechism, we talked about that. Also, when we, well, when we talked about the last things in the creed, um, entering into the joy of the Lord and entering into God's rest, that eternal rest we talk about, especially at funerals. So this is the beatitude which is being offered to us, being promised to us. Paragraph 1721, if you remember um, the famous question from the Baltimore Catechism, why God created you, um, we still see that that answer is still present. You know, the Second Vatican Council did not change. Um, God put us into the world to know, to love, and to serve him and so to come to paradise. 1722, such beatitude surpasses the understanding and powers of man. It comes from an entirely free gift of God, whence it is called supernatural. The beatitudes, you know, because they kind of imply that twofold path. The, either the path to light or the, the path to happiness or the path to unhappiness. Um, the beatitude implies that and that it's only in God alone that, that we will receive this great, this happiness, the fulfillment of this natural desire to happiness. And then in 1724, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, so the Decalogue is an important word. It's going to be re- repeated and that means the Ten Commandments. The ten words is literally Decalogue. It's going to be repeated. So 1724, the Decalogue, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Apostolic Catechesis describe for us the paths that lead to the kingdom of heaven. Sustained by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we tread them step by step by everyday acts. By the working of the word of Christ, we slowly bear fruit in the church to the glory of God. An important that is an important paragraph. So, in um, catechesis, in our presentation of the faith, in our living of the faith, even the Ten Commandments 
the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the Beatitudes, but it also includes those refinement, Christ's, you know, broadening of the Ten Commandments. If you think like the divorce, the teaching of on divorce, um, the teaching on lust, the teaching on anger, um, all of those things are part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, these are these are given to us to live this path, to walk this path, act by act, by everyday act. Um, the next um, section of the Catechism, so beginning on paragraph 1730, is uh, man's freedom, which again is another part of our dignity. So, you know, we're made in the image of God. That's that's part of our dignity. Why why every human being has dignity. We're called to this eternal supernatural heaven or um, happiness beatitude. That's another reason for our dignity. The third is that um, human beings have freedom, and that's another part of their dignity. So again, that concept of dignity can help us, I think, to explain all of Catholic morality. God willed that man should be left in the hand of his own counsel, so that he might of his own accord seek his creator and freely attain his full and blessed perfection by cleaving to him. Uh, that's Gaudium et Spes. So Gaudium et Spes is that important document in the Second Vatican Council. The two kind of hinges of the Second Vatican Council is Lumen Gentium, which is the document on the church, and then Gaudium et Spes, which is on the, the church's relationship to the modern world. So both of those are like the crucial foundational documents of the Second Vatican Council. So Gaudium et Spes talks a lot about how the Christian is to interact with the modern world. And there's beautiful sections on marriage, the vocation of marriage in there. But the, it, it's interesting that throughout this section on morality, a lot of the sections begin with a quote from Gaudium et Spes. And so we might see that, you know, well, we see in that that, you know, the catechism is faithful to the Second Vatican Council. Um, man is rational. There's this quote from St. Irenaeus, um, who lived in the 200s AD. Man is rational and therefore like God. He is created with free will and is master over his acts. So we're like God. We're in the image of God because of our reason and because of our free will. So the Catechism in 1731 defines what freedom means. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. So we ex exercise our freedom not just by our will, not just by choosing, but also with our reason, by making an intelligible choice. To do one thing or to not to do it. To do this or to do that. By free will, one shapes one's own life. So the choices we make 
build who we are. In 1732, there is a po the possibility of choosing between good and evil, and thus of growing in perfection or of failing and sinning. This freedom characterizes properly human acts. It is the basis of praise or blame, merit or reproach. So a human act has to be free. For, for an act to be a human act, it has to be one that we exercise freedom on. In 1733, though, we're, pre we're presented with a paradox that the more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. And then the reverse would be um, that the choice to obey or to do evil is an abuse of freedom and leads to the slavery of sin. So there is a danger, I mean, and this is, you know, a lot of philosophers or the secular world define freedom as just the make just making a choice or you know of of just you know deciding one thing or the other even deciding might be a little too strong because deciding requires thinking you know so just opting for one thing or the other but that's not really freedom um freedom is um both the use of reason and the will to decide one thing or another. And that's where de I think decide is a good use of it because we're thinking and reflecting on it. Um, when we choose the good, we become freer and, and able to deliberate more, you know, and make better decisions, make freer decisions. When we choose the evil, we um, begin to to bind ourselves to the evil, which then takes away our freedom, distorts our freedom, our ability to deliberate. Freedom makes man responsible for his acts to the extent that they are voluntary. And this this brings up an important vocabulary word, imputability, imputability. Um, which the catechism uses quite a bit. So imputability means that we can attribute this choice, this, this decision, to a person. So by freedom, if we're, if we're voluntary, so by the exercise of our reason and will making this choice, then we're responsible for this. Imputability in 1735 tells us imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, inordinate attachments, and other psychological or social factors. So you can begin to, to lose your um, your your ability so attributable so imputability we can me means attributable so whether or not we attribute this to the person 
as a human act. Now that doesn't mean that whatever act has been done is is somehow not evil. It's just you can't really impute it. You can't really attribute it to that person. This is, um, I think, going to become very clear as we go through um, sin, the, the topic of sin. Every act directly willed is imputable to the, auth- to the author, attributable to the author. And it gives, the catechism then gives several biblical examples. An action can be indirectly voluntary when it results from negligence regarding something one should have known or done. For example, an accident arising from the ignorance of traffic laws. So if, if we um, are, um, an action can be indirectly voluntary when it results from negligence regarding something one should have known or done. So even though um, maybe we're not directly responsible for this action, we should have known the things. You know, we're responsible for that, knowledge, for that ignorance. We, you know, um, I should have known what the laws are. Um, so, you know, when you, when you first read the first thing about imputability in the catechism, you think, well, there's, I mean, people can get off with everything. You know, it would sound like. But then we first have to say, you know, a free act is to not, um, not to learn or to not um, know what we otherwise should know. Um, and so it all begins, we have to look at the chain of decisions and choices and actions to the first, to the first point. And the first point might be, well, I decided not to read the the book that they gave me at driver's ed about stop sign etiquette, you know? And that's where it all began, my imputability, my responsibility for this. So um, 1737 then goes even more um, into this. An effect can be tolerated without being willed by its agent, for instance. A mother's exhaustion from tending her sick children um, I'm not quite sure that, that that would have been the best example that I would have used. But, um, but the idea that there are certain effects of a choice um, that can be tolerated but aren't willed, you know. So we often call those, um, you know, sort of unintended effects or something like that. A bad inf- effect is not imputable, so I'm not responsible for a bad effect, if it was not willed either as an end or as a means of an action. um, An example is the death of a person incurs in aiding someone in danger. For a bad effect to be imputable, for me to be responsible for a bad effect, it must be foreseeable and the agent must have the possibility of avoiding it. As in the case of manslaughter caused by a drunken driver. So the drunken driver, 
yeah, he didn't intend to kill that person, but the fact that he made the choice to drive, well, first to drink and then to drive, um, this is something that could have been foreseen. These um, principles all um, are going to be crucial when really looking at the commandments. So we uh, these this touch is touching upon like the principle of double effect. So when I choose something, my action will have different effects, and those effects are somehow connected to the act and to my decision to make those acts. So this helps us in complex moral situations. It this sort of jargon we might think like, why the heck is the catechism going through this? Um, it helps us to dice our own consciences to dissect the actions that are being proposed to us to do. Seventeen thirty-eight. All owe to each other the duty of respect the right to exercise of freedom, especially in moral and religious matters, is an inalienable requirement of the dignity of the human person. This right must be recognized and protected by civil authority within the limits of common good and public order. So this, there's a fundamental right to a right of conscience. The Catechism then talks about freedom in the divine economy the, or the economy of salvation. So we know the, the exercise of freedom by the first human beings has caused this alienation, um, the fall, original sin. Um, the exercise of freedom does not imply a right to say or do everything. It is false to maintain that man, the subject of this freedom, is an individual who is fully self-sufficient and whose finality is the satisfaction of his own interests in the enjoyment of earthly goods. What we would say is, you know, the Catholic Church is not um, libertine, even though we uphold freedom, it's not libertine or libertarian. So, you know, libertine in the sense that I can, that a people, People have a right to do whatever they want that satisfies their will, you know. Like, we do have to kind of balance choices um, and decisions, especially if it's going to impact other people. Um, so this is, I mean, this is, I think, is a, is a danger because we can get dragged into... Um, other sort of philosophical positions just because we uphold freedom and that we ought to have a freedom of conscience we can get dragged into um, a problematic situation where well anyone you know you're entitled to make whatever choice you want um, we're also reminded that there is this authentic liberty, this authentic freedom. Paragraph 1741 reminds us that we already glory in the liberty of the children of God. There is a certain freedom which we have when we live in Christ. 
The grace of Christ is not in the slightest way a rival of our freedom. When this freedom accords with the sense of the true and the good, that good has put in the human heart. On the contrary, as Christian experience attests, especially in prayer, the more docile we are to the promptings of grace, the more we grow in inner freedom. So grace, another, op- another thing that people might throw forward is that somehow grace deprives us of our freedom. But actually grace enables and cooperates with our freedom. And in grace we are freer um, than without it. So in these paragraphs, just kind of a review, 1739 through 1742, the catechism is helping us to understand freedom in its larger sense. So sin deprives us of authentic freedom. Um, there is a, you know, a th- this threat to freedom in the sense that if we just think that freedom is just the ability to make any choice that we want, or that that somehow is true freedom just to be able, you know, this sort of liber- libertine definition of freedom. Um, but that really... Um, the salvation that Christ offers is the legitimate freedom. So, I, unless we despair because those principles of effects that we talked about, um, they might drive. Those are very complex things. I would I would suggest kind of going back over and reading um, those parts on imputability and attributable, but. On the one hand, we want to say that in order for us to be responsible for an act, it's got to be a free act that we deliberate on. However, um, you know, our failure to deliberate on an act is itself something that we could be responsible for. Um, and even though the effects, um, you know, there is, some effects are unintended um, and unforeseeable. Some effects are foreseeable, and we we have to kind of keep those in mind as we deliberate. Um, that helps us to kind of balance it. Now, just to get even more complicated, the the catechism then goes in to the action theory, which I actually think might help to understand some of the these issues of deliberation. So all this stuff really is, um, I mean, it's found in Scripture, but a lot of this stuff is natural revelation, and it's right from Aristotle, um, the human acts, and even those issues on um, imputability and effects and things like that. It's it's just prime Aristotle, um, and Thomas's St. Thomas Aquinas is kind of um, notched it up with with the Christian tradition as well. So, in this section, um, first of all, we're um, paragraph 1749 is a nice, beautiful text. It says, um, "Freedom makes man a moral subject. When he acts deliberately, man is, so to speak, the father of his acts. Human acts, that is, acts that are freely chosen." in consequence of a judgment of conscience, can be morally evaluated. They are either good or evil. So this whole action theory is, 
And, and with it, the earlier talk about effects and imputability, this is all about helping our consciences be formed to analyze our actions. So there are three um, sources for a human act. The first is the object. Sometimes, and the catechism will refer to it sometimes as the matter. We often talk about that in our catechesis for the sacrament of confession and mortal sin, you know, grave matter versus um, light matter, those kind of things. So that's the object. So it's what I am choosing. The catechism is going to define each of these three things. The um, the object chosen morally specifies the act of the will. So we might we might say it's the type of act or it's the particular act that we're choosing. Then there is the intention or the end in view as it's sometimes called. Um, the end in view. So this intention we're told in 1752, resides in the acting subject. So what that means is, is it's hard for me to evaluate someone else's action because I don't know what their intention is. Um, the object is, um, you know, like that's what we might say as the word object, you know, includes its objective, which means I can see this. I can see that they have done this act or this type of act. But the intention resides um, within the acting person, which therefore means I can't really judge their intention. Um, the end is the first goal of the intention and indicates the purpose pursued in the action. So sometimes in there is what is called the final intention or the end. The intention is a movement of the will toward the end. It is concerned with the goal of the activity. Intention is not limited to directing individual actions, but can guide several actions towards one and the same purpose. It can, incord it can orient one's whole life towards its ultimate end. So there is um, intentions, you know, for particular acts, and then there's in a larger intention, a final intention. So, you know, hopefully the final intention of our actions is this beatitude or to, to be with God. Um, but there are um, particular intentions for individual acts. The third uh, factor are what we call circumstances, circumstances, which in, including the consequences, there are secondary elements of the moral act. They contribute to or increase the and diminish the moral good of the act. So let's look at, so I'm not going to give specific examples because that might drive us crazy. But so the object is what, what am I going to do? What act am I going to do? An object could be good, or as the catechism is going to tell us um, in paragraph 1755, they may, it may be evil and always evil, what we call intrinsically evil acts. Um, 
paragraph 1755. A morally good act requires, well, we'll talk about that later, but the object of the choice can by itself vitiate an act in its entirety. There are some concrete acts, such as fornication, that is always wrong to choose because choosing them entails a disorder of the will that is a moral evil. Um, so there are certain objects that are all that are what we call intrinsically evil. Um, there are, you know, some that are good. You know, I mean, a lot, most of them are good. Um, so if an act is, if if the object is evil, nothing, no matter what your intention is or the circumstances are, it will always be evil. Um, so that's the first, you know, when we look at this, the first thing is, what is this, what am I wanting to do? What am I proposing, deliberating on doing? What object, what is the object? If it's intrinsically evil, then I should just stop right there, you know. The next is the intention. Not so, I mean, yes, there's this larger, longer chain of intentions. But what is, the, what is my intent on doing this? So if it's a bad intent, if it's for bad intentions, then even if that object is good, it makes it bad. So the classic example is, I want to give alms to the poor, which is a good object, but I want to do it for attention, which is a bad intention. And so therefore it becomes a, an evil act, a bad act. Circumstances either heighten um, or lower the degree of goodness or evil. So, for instance, um, well, like in the almsgiving example, a million dollars versus five dollars. Now, it might be what, you know, the percentage of, you know, if, if you recall the parable of the poor widow you know it's the percent you know like if you're giving a huge percent of your livelihood versus nothing you know then that kind of intensifies the goodness of that act you know um so the circumstances kind of just if if the circumstances don't change it from being a good act to an evil act or from an evil act to a good act what it does is it makes it even more, you know, better or makes it worse, if that makes sense. The um, 1756, it is therefore an error to judge the morality of human acts by considering only the intention that inspires them or the circumstances which supply their context. There are acts which in and of themselves, independently of circumstances and intentions, are always gravely illicit by reason of their object, such as blasphemy and perjury, murder and adultery. One may not do evil so that good may result from it. Well, I think we'll end there today. Um, with the action theory. Let's uh, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.